So the other thing that I thought was super interesting about this is that this theory, it also has something called path dependence, which means the bones are impacted by the sequence in time of preceding events, meaning how and when and how much have you been loading them up until this point is going to impact how they behave in the future, which I thought was kind of cool. So here's what they say in the study. For bone to adapt to a new mechanical loading state, bone cells must have some memory of their previous mechanical environment in order to determine that the new environment is different and requires a response. <laughs> I mean, it sounds a little bit like bones can think here. I mean, maybe that's a t-shirt. Bones can think. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Court, physical therapist, and I'm here with my co-host, Laurel Beversdorf. Hello. Today's episode is about the in-betweens, as in, how much time should I leave in between bouts of heavy lifting or bouts of impact training for maximum benefit to my bones? And how much time should I leave in between bouts of activity? And why is this episode called bone cells get bored. So that's something called cellular accommodation that we're going to talk about and periodization. And was it another one that began with a P? Programming. There we go. Just basically less about the thing that you're doing and more about the organizing of the things that you're doing. That's nice. and, and why you would choose to organize them in a way that you would for maximum bone building capacity. So we're going to look at one research paper in particular and kind of get really granular with it. And then we have a couple of others that are looking at similar questions. Whenever I think about bone building, I think about Fraggle Rock, which was a show that was on, it was like peak timing for me and maybe three other people listening to this. You, did you ever watch a little oh, Fraggle Rock? Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay. I, it wasn't one of my favorites though. I had other cartoons that I gravitated toward. Okay. Well, Fraggle Rock wasn't a cartoon, so it makes me wonder if you ever oh. did actually watch it. <laughs> but it was... Wait um, a second, I think that there was a cartoon version of it. There may have been. Okay. But the original was like Jim Henson, Muppety kind of figures. Yeah, yeah. I was never a Muppety kind of oh, okay. girl. Well, that'll that'll do it. Yeah. The The reason why I think about it is, so there, there were a bunch of different kinds of characters, but there was this one set of creatures. They were called dozers. And all they did all day was build these very intricate and fragile formations that, you know, were supposed to look like they were out of glass or something like that. And then inevitably a fraggle, the fraggles were a lot kind of wilder and flailing around. And so a fraggle would just like burst through the whole thing and smash it without even realizing what they'd done. <laughs> and then the dozers would just kind of look around at what was smashed. And then they would just like shrug and start building the thing again. And so I think of the like osteoblast, osteoclast relationship as if they're locked in this kind of fraggle dozer kind of, you know, thing, right? Can, so, Can you tell us what an osteoblast I and an sure osteoclast can. is? Yeah. Are, are Osteo you, you, could you explain it as entertainingly as you explained a dozer and a fraggle? Uh, maybe, probably not. That's why I'm like <laughs> led with the fun story. But osteoblasts are the cells that build bone. So they are like the dozers in they're our the story. They're the dozers. They're just, they're in there just like laying it down, doing, they're like, they're, they're kind of like, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and don't they have a song about going to work? Hi or, ho. There we go. Hi ho. It's off to build bone we go. That's right. So the dozers are kind of like that. And the osteo and the osteoblasts are what is actually building your bone. And then osteoclasts are those cells that break bone down so that it can be resorbed. And that's, those are your fraggles that are just like <laughs> smashing stuff up and Nice. Yeah. yeah. So the osteoblasts are part of the anabolic process, the Ooh. tissue building process, and the osteoclasts are part of the catabolic process, the tissue breakdown process. That's right. So before we start talking about this research paper, the one thing I do have to say is like that I'm always like a little is this paper uses rats and most papers honestly use rats when they're not using humans. It's the standard. 
Uh, if so, if the rat part bums you out a little bit, you're not alone. I mean, I'm completely hypocritical because I'm not a vegetarian. You know, the only good news is that why there there's a lot more oversight with all research, and so it's done as humanely humanely as possible. So you know, they'll give them all kinds of drugs like anesthesia drugs, ether, things like that. So it's a little more humane, right? Laurel, can you give us a quick primer or primer, as some people say, which I don't understand? Because it's not a prim number, it's a prime number. But anyway, can you give us one on bone cells? Sure. So bone cells, Sarah named a few, they respond and adapt to mechanical forces or the lack thereof, right? So if you want to cause the bone cells to make themselves make the bones bigger, right? If you want to have that anabolic process become more dominant, you want them to be exposed to mechanical forces that would be osteogenic. So osteogenic simply means bone building. Um, however, if you know you don't engage in activities where your bones are exposed to osteogenic loads or forces, this is when that catabolic process will probably become more dominant. So bone cells mechanosensitivity, which is really just a fancy term for their sensitivity to load or their mechanosensitivity begins to decline pretty quickly when there is continued exposure to the same amount of load. So what literally what that means is they become less sensitive to the load their mechanosensitivity decreases, a.k.a. they get bored or they just have a short attention span, which kind of reminds me of myself (laughs) with movement, right? Like I have to do a variety of different types of movement and teach a variety of different types of movement to keep my own short attention span engaged. And also just to keep myself maybe... The word sensitive is the wrong word, but to keep myself creatively stimulated. Engaged. Engaged, exactly. So some parameters, some load parameters uh, parameters of interest when we're seeking to find an activity that is osteogenic are magnitude. That's how high is the load. Bones like high loads. Rate. How fast is the load applied? Bones like a faster rather than a slower rate of loading. Frequency, which kind of comes into our discussion here about cellular accommodation, as Sarah mentioned, which is that bone cells get bored. And this relationship between frequency and volume. So basically volume is how much you're doing and frequency is how often you are For example, if it's food, how much food you're eating versus how often you're eating, okay? So frequency, it's going to depend for your bones. We'll hopefully unpack that in context throughout this episode. Impact, your bones like high impact versus low impact. Duration, your bones like duration in not too high of amount, all right? Because again, they get a little bored, so we'll talk about that. And then dynamic versus static. Your bones like dynamic loads versus static loads. Finally, variable versus repetitive. They really love variety. Okay, so when you hear they like high loads, they like fast rate of loading, they like high impact, and they like dynamic loading, and they don't like the opposites of those, hopefully you can see why yoga is not osteogenic. Okay, because yoga is low load. It's slow rate of loading. It's low impact or no impact, in fact, and it's a largely statically performed exercise, meaning we hold poses, okay? And so if if your activity meets some of these requirements for bone growth, there's a good chance that it could be osteogenic under certain circumstances, but yoga doesn't really meet any of them. So... And if it, if it does, probably want the one that it might meet for a very short amount of time is magnitude. And this is in the context of someone who is very deconditioned, has been mostly sedentary, who begins a yoga practice, and within certain poses, body weight would for sure constitute a high magnitude load. 
but for a very short period of time, especially when we're trying to load the bones of the lower extremities, which are the ones that are most frequently fractured due to osteoporosis. And standing poses very quickly do not constitute a high magnitude load for folks because even sedentary folks and deconditioned folks are still walking around all day on their legs. I was looking at that list to see if while you were talking about uh, whether or not yoga ha had you know fulfilled any of these parameters, I was in my mind kind of going through and thinking about, well, does Pilates fulfill any of these parameters as well? And the only... Uh, the answer is like ish, maybe slightly more, especially if you're doing work on the reformer. Yeah. But really the same thing, magnitude is is going to be pretty quickly over overcome, even with your on the reformer and using, um, you know, maybe all the springs for an exercise. It is more dynamic, right, versus the sort of static nature of yoga. There's a lot more coming in and out of shapes. So that part's good. Yeah, for sure. But uh, everything else kind of the same where it's like it might slightly fit into this category but the answer is essentially and again this is because of that cellular accommodation not for long yeah, and the thing about pilates is that a lot of pilates is done lying down yes it's done on your back and so that right there you know is it's it, and you could be under tension from the springs and things like that but you're still you're actually on your back so well something to think about there's a fair amount where you're not on your no, back true, per se true. but you are often like lying down in some shape right. on your side, possibly on your belly. Right. There's some, you know, as if you, if you're taking a more advanced or harder class or something like that, you are going to be doing more standing and more kneeling and things, but it's still, it's still, you know, not, it's not the kind of impact that we're talking about with something like jumping. Right. Like, Plyometrics. Right. And even, I mean, you know, somebody listening to this might be like, oh, but the jump board, which is you can do jumping on the mm -hmm. reformer. It's mm -hmm. super fun. Mm -hmm. But again, the way that it's like, if you've ever done it, Imagine landing with very little bend to maybe just your ankles and your knees a little bit, mm -hmm. because that's the way you would need the impact to actually be meaningful to your bones right. and would feel rotten. Right. Because you're not trained to, to, to push yeah. off of the jump board or land on the jump board with a stiff landing. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, it just, I can, I can all feel it as I'm imagining it. I'm like, that feels like it would just rattle my brain. Like yeah. it just does not seem like it would fit. The fun part is like, you're like, I'm jumping like a ballerina and I've yeah. got all this time to do fun things with my legs in between, yes. you know? Right, right, right. So let's get into the study that we're looking at today. And it is called Recovery Periods Restore Mechanosensitivity to Dynamically Loaded Bone. And it was done by Roebling, Burr, and Turner in 2001. And I'm going to break in and say they totally spoiled the ending with the title, right? <laughs> yeah, there's not really a good sense of like, no spoilers in research. Research is like, give me all the spoilers. Uh, and most of them, this is a complete aside, but most, most research titles are terrifically boring like this one, where it just describes like what's happening in the study. But the winner that I saw once was a study called You're in Trouble, A Social History of Bedwetting. <laughs> and then I was like, what, who, what jokester put you're in trouble and like did a little pun about peeing and then it turns out there's a ton of them that start with you're in trouble because i'm assuming if you know you're the kind of researcher who's researching pee if you can make a joke about it you're gonna do it yeah you're in trouble supplements are expensive <laughs> now your urine is too <laughs> okay so this study has nothing to do with urine fortunately for all of us so again it's about recovery periods between loads of bone and what happens when we mess around or look at those parameters. So they were looking at two things in the study. I'm going to have Laurel tell you what those two things are. Quote, we sought to determine the amount of time required to restore mechanosensitivity to desensitized bone cells in vivo by manipulating the recovery time. Zero, 0.5, one, two, four, or eight hours allowed between four identical daily loading bouts. So I'm gonna stop right here. Mm -hmm. So they're gonna do four loading bouts and they're gonna test the difference between zero hours for recovery, a half an hour of recovery, one hour of recovery, two hours of recovery, four hours of recovery, or eight hours of recovery between these four loading bouts. So this is what was allowed these different recovery times was allowed between four identical daily loading bouts. We also investigated the osteogenic bone building effectiveness of shorter term recovery periods lasting several seconds 
0.5 seconds, 3.5 seconds, 7 seconds, or 14 seconds introduced between each of 36 identical daily loading cycles. Okay, so there's the difference between loading bouts. You can think of that like a workout and loading cycles. Think of that like a set. So what they're trying to, trying to figure out is, is there an amount of recovery time between the bouts of loading that is ideal to allow the most mechanosensitivity of the bones to occur? Because we already know that they decrease in mechanosensitivity after being uh, exposed to a certain load. And then how much time does it need before it's ramped all the way back up to full, full bore again, right? In that first one. And the second thing, they're looking at how much time, as you said, between the individual like sets or reps of what you're doing. And so to make this clear for you guys, listeners, they, because they, they did both of these in one paper, which is kind of unusual, but the, what they refer to as the long-term recovery experiment. That's the one that's like the hours of recovery. Mm -hmm. And then the short-term recovery experiment is the seconds of recovery, right? So if I'm referring to the long-term recovery or the short-term recovery, that's what I'm referring to. What I really, really liked about this experiment more than a lot of things is how well it was designed. I can get a sense of like, you just, I'm trying to describe what it feels like to read a well-written paper. You're just like, thank you. Like, <laughs> because you're not reading it being like, well, you can't, you're not, you're not nitpicking for what they did wrong because you're like every side, every time you have like a, what about a, the next sentence answers yeah, it kind yeah, of a thing. You can visualize everything that they did. It makes total exactly. sense. You don't feel like they're leaving things out or just kind of glossing over things. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was very kind of systematic, like exactly step-by-step. Step, here's what we did. Which is, you know, that's what research should be. So they really covered their bases well. One of the things they did was random allocation. So for the long-term and the short-term experiments, the rats were randomly allocated into one of three groups. The bending group, which is the one getting the load applied, something they called sham bending, which I'm going to go into a second, into in a second, or no loading, which is the control group where nothing happened. So Laurel, why do we care about it that it's random allocation into groups? But you don't want a human imposing their bias in selecting the rats they want to put into each group because humans are inherently biased and, they, and, and, and researchers, obviously, like anybody else, they want to get the results that they expect to get, right? Right. And show the thing that they, they are trying to show, maybe if they're trying to show something, right? So if it's random, we leave it up to chance. And that way we eliminate human bias. Nice. So the bending group... They use this really specific machine that's been previously designed and used scientifically. Like this is another thing. This is where I'm going to get super nerdy. But like if you're using a machine or a tool in your experiment, you want one that has been shown in other experiments to be really good at what it does. They used a machine that's been shown to be reliable. And so this machine would apply a certain amount of bending force to the right tibia bone. And then there was a group called no loading group, which was the control, meaning they did not receive any bending at all. And then what? this is also why I'm like, oh, they really just went the extra mile. So they, they had this group, they called it the sham bending group, where the tibia was placed in, I'm not sure if it was the same machine or just, uh, or a different one, but the amount of pressure applied was only the amount that might kind of irritate the soft tissue, not enough to load the bone because they have to, they have to cover the bases. And so somebody could come in and be like, well, how do you know that it was the load to the bone and not the load to the soft tissue that was, you know what I mean? Like you have to get that kind of granular. And then, so they, so they did that in case something to do with the irritation to the soft tissue was part of that mechanosensitivity. Right on. They also used the left tibia on each of the animal animals as like an in internal control to compare to the right leg that was being tested. Right. So I just, oh. It's, it's impossible to control for everything. Well, so Sarah, what's the, what's the importance of the control group? So you asked about randomization. So yes. what's, the, what's the importance of the control group? Thank you. The importance of the control group is that you then have a group of people who are people or rats who are not receiving whatever the intervention is so that you can say that very clearly it's the intervention that made the change, not just the fact that they were rats. And then also this other sort of half control group, this sham group where they're getting part of what was happening to the loaded uh, rats, but not enough, right? So then we've got to like, well, is it nothing at all for the control? 
does that make a difference or does it make a difference if we if we sort of load the soft tissue and like irritate the soft tissue a little bit? Is that going to do anything? So they're really covering for all these different possible variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what study doesn't have a control group? <laughs> well, I can think of two. I can think of several, but yes. <laughs> I mean, so Lauren Fishman's 12-minute yeah. daily yogurt regimen reverses bone loss, uh-huh. right? And also all of the research put out there by osteostrone. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's <laughs> true. Okay, so after 16 days for both the long-term and the short-term experiments, they euthanized the rats, and then they did a cell studies on their tibia bones, and they ran a bunch of different kinds of statistical analyses on all of the information, a whole series of different ways, including the left leg relative to the right leg on all the rats, different groups against each other, And so this is what they found. For the rats that had the load applied to their right tibia, there was no significant difference in the left tibia, which had the recovery time, but no loading, which tells us it wasn't just the recovery time which impacted the bone growth. It was recovery time between loads. And this is why I really like this study. It's very elegantly designed. It's like it leaves no stone unturned, right? Pretty much. And then... In the long-term recovery study, they found that the rats who had eight hours of rest between loading bouts, so the maximum period that they uh, studied, they had a relative bone formation rate of 125% compared to the zero-hour rest group. Wouldn't you like to do something 125% faster? Hell yes. Like anything. Yes. Better, faster, more efficiently, all of those things. And then 102%... Uh, relative bone formation rate in relation to the half-hour rest group. Wow. Yeah. Then what they did was they sort of took the curve of the bone group formation based off of the like zero, half an hour, one hour, two, you know, and they graphed it. And then they they plotted the charts and extrapolated past the eight hours based on the how the, the curve of the chart to see if even longer than eight hours would potentially be better. And they said that there's no clear benefit to going longer than eight hours. But, you know, again, this is an extrapolation of their data. It's not f- direct finding from the study. Okay. I just want to pause for a second here. So we're talking about rats. We're talking about rats that have been sedated. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, a form of loading that is creating bending forces at the bone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this bending force at the bone is causing the rat's bone to make itself stronger, right? Yeah. Um, there are two ways that we can we can make our bones stronger as humans. One mm-hmm. is in this way of creating a bending force. And we get that through impact, specifically the long bones. So when you jump off of a box, you land on the ground, you can't feel it or see it, but whether you realize it or not, your long bones bend a little bit. And so to, to the bone gets this message that it needs to get better at resisting that bending force. So it makes itself stronger. But another way that we send our bones a message that they need to get stronger is we strength train. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so impact and strength training kind of make your bones stronger two different ways. Impact has more to do with ground reaction forces. So when you hit the ground, the ground hits you back. It kind of pushes back up against you. Your bones bend. Your bones then get better at resisting bending, right? With strength training, these are joint reaction forces. So you're lifting a weight. Your muscles are contracting. Your muscles produce an enormous amount of force relative to like even what you can feel. Like muscle force is very, very high. And so that force is transferred from the tendon to the bone and the bone experiences force in in a very different way then so it's more of a like a a a pulling force that that still causes strain to the bone but it's different and i want you to visualize how it's different because you know when when we say like these rats rested eight hours between bouts okay that's kind of like saying they rested eight hours between workouts Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. because this is the long form rest that we're talking about it's not the rest between sets or the rest between cycles um when we when we do activities like impact training or strength training, um, typically we take longer rests between bouts, between workouts, because we're not sedated with a machine bending our bone. We're using our energy systems. We're using um, energy in our body to move in a way that creates these forces. So just, just to root this in like human, the human world so that we don't get lost in the 
the experiments on rats world and and to kind of bring people back to like why we're talking about this and and how we feel like this research could inform what we do as people which is actually very different than what's happening to these rats but what's happening to these rats is giving us a lot of information about how bones uh respond to force how bones grow and how how bones um remain sensitive to the input that makes them want to grow. Thank you for that. So they also compare that eight hour result to a prior experiment that looked at a 24 hour result. So a, a different experiment that did the same thing, but kept 24 hours instead of eight hours. And the rates of the bone growth were basically the same. So there, that sort of suggests that eight hours is the minimum amount of rest time between loading for bones to return to their highest level of mechanosensitivity. And they also found from the data that even a half an hour of rest is better than no rest at all. And in terms of like, you know, rooting that in real life, since, and since we, can, we can't extrapolate this really to strength training because as Laurel explained, it's not the same type of load to the bone. We can extrapolate it to the way that bones are stressed with impact training. I don't know many people that are doing like really hardcore impact training and then eight hours later they're doing really hardcore impact training again it's i mean maybe i'm sure there are people but i think they're being prescribed it potentially if it's found that they're safe to engage in impact training and they need to build bone like i've heard like a common protocol is to do 20 jumps mm -hmm. or 20 bouts of in 20 um repetitions of impact take four hours rest do another 20 oh interesting four hours rest another 20 the eight-hour time period between more than two bouts is unrealistic for the human yes. sleep cycle. Right. <laughs> so four hours maybe it was the thing they determined would be doable because humans tend to be awake for at least 12 hours. So you would wake up maybe – I don't know what they're doing, so don't like – don't take this protocol and think that like you should now this start is... waking up and jumping off of your bed 12 times as soon as you wake up or whatever. But it, it seems like there may have been a morning, afternoon, an yeah. evening that makes sense. bout of exercise with that four-hour time period in between yeah. so that the bone cells could resensitize. And it's interesting. I wonder if – I'd be curious to know if that four hours is the sort of like, this seems reasonable for a human versus – we know that longer periods of rest are going to allow for more mechanosensitivity. So what's the longest amount of time we could tell them to do, right. you know? Yep. But the, the bottom line is like any rest is better than no rest for, for getting your bones to return to their optimum level of mechanosensitivity. Yeah. And so when we think about impact heavy activities or, and I don't mean heavy impact, I mean activities that utilize impact as sort of an inherent feature of the activity. So we could we could say jogging or running, right? Sprinting. Let's compare those, right? So jogging is low intensity. Running is maybe moderate intensity. Sprinting is high intensity. So we're looking at impact, okay? When we jog, we do low intensity impact and we can go for a long time because we're jogging. And a long time, I mean more than a hundred cycles, right? Because your bone cells are going to get bored running it's higher intensity it's moderate intensity but again when we go running we're probably running more than 100 steps right <laughs> then there's sprinting right sprinting is high magnitude so that's osteogenic and you're not sprinting for probably more than 20 seconds unless you're elite right right and even 20 seconds is a little I mean, bit of a stretch i'm trying to think of last time i sprinted for 20 seconds and i i i'm sure i passed out but sprinting is actually something you should probably prepare for yeah. via the the process of progressive overload and i've been doing more sprinting and i have to tell you like i i can stay pretty fast for about 10 seconds and then 15 seconds it starts to get hard to stay fast and then around 20 seconds i've already i'm already running a lot slower than i was at the start line so i don't know how many steps that would be i've never tried to count although i will the next time i'm asked to sprint that because I have to be asked to sprint to sprint. Well, of course. I'm not just going to go do that I, on my own. <laughs> I don't even have to be asked. Someone would have to be chasing me for me to sprint. Although with that said, probably I should start sprinting. <laughs> so it's very osteogenic thing to do. Yeah. But with that being said, you can see then how sprinting would fulfill the requirements for osteogenic activity, not only because it's high intensity, but with this idea of high intensity comes this additional idea of limited 
loading reps or whatever you want to call them, limitive impact instances because you can't keep going at that intensity for longer than say a hundred steps. So what sprint training might look like if you're going to use sprint training to load your bones would be sprint and then rest a long time and then sprint and then rest a long time. And that's that long time might be a couple of minutes or you might just take a sprint in the morning, a sprint in the afternoon, a sprint. I don't care how you do it, but the idea here is we want to resensitize our bones. We're going to re- maybe rest even longer. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm already I'm still trying to wrap my brain around a world where I'm sprinting, and then the idea that I'm sprinting three times a day really seems <laughs> like a big ask. Well, let's use this more as sort of like this rat experiment. Of course. Let's extrapolate out. So we could take any number of impact-rich activities and apply the same idea of building in time for your bones to become resensitized. Yeah. So here's the other interesting part that's about to put a big old fork in what we just said, which is the short-term recovery study, right? So this is where they they were doing the same kind of loading of the bones, but they were creating space in between each time the bone was loaded. And what they found was bone formation rates were 66 to 105% higher in the 14 second group than in any of the other times, which again were 0.5 seconds, 3.5 seconds, and seven seconds. And then they talked for a while about how, you know, we don't know, I think it was, they said they were basically like, we don't know at what point between seven seconds and 14 seconds is the top out, like maybe it was 10. So they're saying, you know, any time between seven seconds and 14 seconds is the right amount of rest time between loading on a short-term scale. So think of that as loads either between sets or even between reps, yeah. depending on the activity. But again, this is where this is an impact activity, right? right. It's this hard is to an it. impact activity. So we, it's hard so to extrapolate one, it. You can do sets of plyometric exercises. Exactly. Yeah. But I was, I was just trying to visualize a sprint where I took one bounding leap and then I was in the air for seven seconds and then I took my next bounding leap and that's not going to work, obviously. Right. But, but what I can imagine is doing drop landings where yeah. you step up onto the box and you drop off of it. And then you take your sweet time getting back up onto the box <laughs> exactly. and you drop off of it. And, and at that rate, if we're saying 10 seconds between drop landings, you could do six to 12 to 18 drop landings in less than three minutes. Yeah. And, and that would potentially be a more osteogenic way to do drop landings. Absolutely. And you wonder as well, I mean, I don't know. I don't, in CrossFit, do they do like drop landings for time? Do they, are you then running back on top of the box or is it generally sort of like, yeah, do your drop, whatever? CrossFit is probably incredibly osteogenic mm. in, in many instances, but in, cross, in CrossFit, we're more likely to be doing box jumps. And oh. in our plyometric exercise, we talked about how box jumps are not great for impact right. because you're jumping from a lower surface to a higher surface. So the impact you're getting when you land on the box is actually so much lower than if you were to step yeah. up onto the box and jump off of the box and land on the floor. <laughs> Typically, you you step off of the box and you jump back up onto it with two feet. Okay. The, I think you should do the reverse, right? Yeah. You should step up onto the box and then jump jump off of it with two feet yeah. if, if you're looking to build bone. Right, exactly. Okay, so here is the conclusion that they wrote in the paper. Physical activity programs used as prophylaxis for bone loss, and they're very much not saying, this is good for bone density building if you have osteoporosis, which, because that's not what they studied. None of, none of the rats had osteoporosis. Right, right, right on. It'd be interesting to do a study where the rats did have osteoporosis and see what happened. Well, I can think of a study that used humans that had osteoporosis, (laughs) and we know what happened there. We sure do. The LIFTMORE trial. We'll link that in the show notes. That's right. So uh, where was I? Physical activity programs used as prophylaxis for bone loss might be met with greater success if appropriate recovery periods are structured into exercise routines. Selectively exposing the bone cell network to load cycles only when the network is highly mechanosensitive is a simple yet highly effective way to maximize the osteogenic effects of skeletal loading. One of the parameters that we can now think about when we are thinking about how we're working out is rest, right? I think a lot of people think about the like workout part, but they don't really think about the rest part, right? The rest is just kind of, I don't know, when I'm tired, I'll stop doing it. Laura, can you tell us more about like program design and, and rest and, and how you might now include that in the way that you work out? Yeah. So if, if we're trying to use impact training with regards to bone building goals, and we're looking at how we would program impact training into a strength training program, which, you know, reminds me a lot of a program 
we've created, Sarah, for our bone density course, Lift for Longevity, where it, it, it combines both impact training and strength training. It sure does. That sounds a lot like what a whole bunch of people are about to do with us. Yeah, exactly. So basically what I would do is I would, within the live class that we're going to have every single week, mm -hmm. um, I would have people doing a bout of impact training with us. And then I would maybe give some homework for mm -hmm. them to repeat those bouts throughout the week, right? Or find multiple times in the day to do those bouts of exercise on their workout days. Um, and so this would kind of tie in with the strength training workouts in a way where we would probably begin with the impact training because it is maybe the thing that we want to be freshest for, yes. right? If not just for our mental focus, <laughs> like let's be most focused when we're doing certain impact exercises. We're going to start obviously not by jumping off of a box, but Thank some you. folks in the program are potentially going to progress toward drop landings off of a box. So the strength training would be similarly programmed, but there may be a lower frequency um, suggested for the strength training part, right? Mm -hmm. So they might be asked to work out two to three times a week, depending on what their schedule allows, and then build in on their days that they have to work out maybe multiple um, impact sessions. Uh, it's going to depend because we're making this, this program really clear cut and straightforward, but allowing room for folks to tailor the program to meet their scheduling needs. All of this to be said, we are going to very closely consider what is the maximum number of cycles a bone can tolerate in a single session before getting bored. We're not going to go over that. Oh, no. Why would we? That would be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Two, we're going to consider this idea of rest between impacts, mm -hmm. right? So maybe we're going to take our time to get up onto the box. And three, we might encourage people to do a little homework. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So the second study that we're going to discuss is our friends Roebling and Turner again, this time in 2004. And this study design is a little bit different, but it's interesting. It's still looking at rest time for improving mechanosensitivity, but this time the parameters were on a bigger time scale. So there were three groups. The group one did five weeks of loading and then had 10 weeks off. Group two did five weeks of loading and then it had five weeks off and then they did five weeks of loading. And group three just did 15 weeks straight loading, no time off. So there were also two control groups, one that was age matched, which I don't know, sometimes when I think about like age matching rats, I think it's kind of cute. And then one baseline, meaning it was like just the same kind of rats. And again, I love the design here because instead of doing just group two and group three against each other, which would help you see if taking a break, right? Because group two does work, rest, work over 15 weeks and group three just works straight through. So that would be a pretty commonly designed study where it'd be like, well, one group took a break and one group didn't, right? So they're also including this group one that takes a break and never starts back up again because that way you can really help determine, is it the break itself that is increasing the bone formation or is it the loading period, right? Mm -hmm. Which logically we would assume it's not the break, right? It's the loading that's doing it. But there's this level of nitty gritty, like analness that you have to have <laughs> when you design research. Because if you don't, somebody's gonna write a response letter to when it's published and they're gonna say in this like super passive aggressive way that they really wish the authors had controlled for the effects of the break period, you know? <laughs> And instead, these guys are just like, suck it. We already did. So that's not what they said. They're probably far more professional than that. Although, who knows? There's people, there's researchers who write papers called you're in trouble. So what do, you, what do we know? Okay. So for all three groups, for the first five weeks, they had the same amount of osteogenic response to loading, which is not surprising because they were all getting the same thing. Right. right. So that's what you would expect. And then after five weeks, group one and group two get a break. Group three does not. Group three just keeps on doing it. Mm -hmm. So then this last five weeks is where it gets interesting because group one is no longer getting any loading. So we wouldn't expect anything to suddenly change. Mm -hmm. Group two had had five weeks off and then started loading again for that last five weeks. And group three had been loading the whole time. So between group two and group three, it was group two, the one that had a five week break before starting up again, that showed significant bone formation increase. That is super cool. Yeah. 
They also said that they found group two showed greater work to failure improvements, which I'm not sure what exactly that means because this was only like a summary of the paper. I didn't get to see the whole paper it was behind a paywall, but I'm assuming that it meant that they could do in the loading workout their work to failure improve, meaning like, well, if that's you can, assuming if you can, if you can work in strength training, if you can, if you have improvements in your ability to work to failure, that would mean you like are more reps, more capable of getting closer to failure. Yeah. But this probably implies breaking of a bone. So their bones then obviously got stronger is what's being suggested. And so what that means is that their bones were less likely to break. So they also stated that they found that long-term waning in mechanical loading over time was not due to age, right? Which is important. And I'll tell you why in a second. So I don't have full access to the paper here. I can't say how they came to that conclusion or, you know, if we think that they, that the study, you know, warranted that conclusion. Um, but there is also prior research that backs this up that shows there is no conclusive proof that an older skeleton loses its mechanosensitivity, which is fantastic news. That is fantastic. Now, that doesn't mean that an older skeleton has an easy of a chance of getting itself stronger than a younger skeleton. Okay, because we have to go back to this idea of anabolic and catabolic processes that are happening constantly in the body. When you're building tissue, your anabolic process is outpacing the catabolic process. When you're losing tissue, the catabolic process is outpacing the anabolic process, right? When you're building capacity, anabolism, anabolism wins. I love anabolism. When you're becoming deconditioned, catabolism wins. Oh, no. Okay, so younger folks are already more likely to be anabolic dominant. Yes. Their body is growing itself stronger very, very easily. It doesn't necessarily mean it's because their bones are more sensitive. It means that catabolism has not sped up. Right. When you get older and as soon as like... 50. Well, age 30, I well, think. Well, 30 is, as is soon when you start to lose. As soon as age 30, we start to lose muscle, lose bone. And then by the time you're perimenopausal, and around the time of menopause and postmenopausal, just that catabolic process has accelerated. So you may have to work harder to maintain slash build only because you're fighting against that natural progression of aging, which is the, the, rapid, the more rapid loss of tissue, strength tissue constitution, right? So, but your bones are still sensitive. Yeah. That's, I mean, that part's nice because yes, you maybe have to work hard because you're sort of like pushing it back against this tide, but it's like, you know, if you're thinking about it, like turning on a faucet, it's not like you turn on the faucet and just a few drips come out or something like exactly. the same amount's going to come out of your faucet. Everything's still working. Yeah. Every, everything is still, everything is still primed for you to be able to make a change. Yeah. Your bones are always excited to build more bone. Exactly. They're super excited. I, I, can we get a t-shirt with excited looking bones and it, it just says, we're excited to build ourselves bigger or something. Like you'll come up with a funnier way to say it. We're so excited. We're it can so just excited. say we're so we're excited. We're so excited. <laughs> we'll workshop it. Uh, okay. So then there's this third study that we looked at. Our friends Roebling and Turner added again in 2004. Again, they were just rocking the early aughts with their research. Do you think there's any way at all, Laurel, that either Roebling or Turner are listening to this podcast? And uh, that they're hearing how much free publicity we're giving them. And do you think we should charge them for this free publicity? Maybe they could give us their research paper for free. Oh, that's a, that's, that would be a nice freebie. I'd consider that adequate payment. Oh, wow. I want more. <laughs> I'm just they're kidding. researchers. I know. They have no money. That's the whole thing. Okay. So this is a, this is a different study. Uh, but it's, it's interesting and relevant. So this study is about figuring out a mathematical model to determine how bones react to loading. So previous models use something called a minimum strain effective threshold, meaning they had this, uh, the, the model of how it, the, the idea, right? A model is not a fact. It's just like, well, this is how we think it's happening. So the previous models use this minimum strain effective threshold, which suggested that the load would have to get to a certain point before it was going to have any effect on the bone. 
right? And so they were like, you know, low load, it doesn't hit that threshold, it's not going to impact the bone. Mm. Higher load gets past the threshold, it's going to affect change on the bone. And so what this study is proposing is a totally different model based on the principle of cellular accommodation mm. and that bones respond to load according to this principle. So let's step back a second and define cellular accommodation. So cellular accommodation is a way to describe the behavior of the bone cells based on what they are being subjected to. Bones generally respond to changes in their environment, whether it's more load or less load or more, I don't know, something. Anyway. Different direction yeah. that the load is applied. Rate of loading, faster or slower. Duration of loading, frequency or shorter. Right. We had a whole list in the beginning, didn't yeah, we? There it is. There it is. So... But when something is in a steady state, meaning it's, it's, it may still be going on, but it's not changing in any way, they eventually accommodate or grow accustomed to that steady state, and they aren't impacted by it anymore to produce more bone, mm. right? So that's cellular accommodation. The, they've grown accustomed to whatever the thing is that you're doing. The, the steps while you're jogging steps while you're jogging the, the, the jumps with the jump rope the amount of weight that you're lifting right any of those things so the other thing that i thought was super interesting about this is that this theory it also has something called path dependence which means the bones are impacted by the sequence in time of preceding events meaning how and when and how much have you been loading them up until this point is going to impact how they behave in the future which I thought was kind of cool. So here's what they say in the study. For bone to adapt to a new mechanical loading state, bone cells must have some memory of their previous mechanical environment in order to determine that the new environment is different and requires a response. <laughs> I mean, it sounds a little bit like bones can think here. I mean, maybe that's a t-shirt. Bones can think. They can't think, but no, I'll, and, I mean, but here's so the, like, yes, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm being sort of silly, but I'm also starting to think like, you know, your brain thinks and, and really this, what this tells us is that bone cell formation or like the adaptation process that takes place with bones is like involves your, your whole nervous system, really like your brain, well, hormones, a cascade of processes that take place. And like the memory is not in your, you're not like, oh, I remember consciously. No. But there's this. And it's not even, here's the thing though, yeah. this is going to, it's not even that it's in your brain at all. No. Because your bones don't get a lot of input from your central nervous system. Mm. So everything that they're responding to is local, mm. right? So they're responding to local load change. They're responding to local chemicals showing up. Like if there's a break, right? Your brain is going like, oh my God, the bone got broken and it's doing that whole thing. And your mm -hmm. bone's like, oh, wow, they're so just the dozering away. So the, the, the anabolic process isn't controlled in any way by the brain. You're, generally speaking, your anabolic processes in your body are. But the, so like the bone building, okay. like when you're growing as a child, right? Because the, and then hormones change, you grow more through puberty a lot of the time, like that, that makes changes to a well, lot of what about of the changes that happen in bone in adulthood? I think in adulthood, I mean, this is a guess, but I would assume that like once, once everything is kind of like leveled off, your bones are just responding to the world around them. And without then, any involvement from, because hormones are involved in this. Hormones are involved. And so, you know, especially for, well, not especially for when, for women and for men, the rate of decline of your bone growth is largely timed with like losing either your estrogen or your testosterone mm -hmm. in your body. Um, but that is the impact of something happening at your brain to your whole body. Got and then it. the bones are just affected by that, right? <laughs> yeah. The brains aren't like, you know what we're going to do? Let's dump the estrogen so we can weaken the bones. They're just dumping the estrogen because that's the cycle right. of life, right? Right. It's complex. No, it's so... <laughs> <laughs> That's my way of saying, indeed it is. <laughs> so what we're seeing is that in this second study where there was the five weeks on, five weeks off, five weeks on versus the 15 weeks on group, uh, there is a difference in bone building based on that timeline because the bones had some time for things to be different in between. And then they loaded up again and they were like, oh, this is different 
we were on vacation and suddenly we're back at work. Nobody told me I had to go back to work today. Um, I am filing for discipline. I don't know. Um, right. So the reason, and this is what we were just talking about. The reason why bones are so impacted by changes in load is that they're not very well innervated, mm-hmm. which is good on, for us because it means yeah. they don't like hurt, especially. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I've heard, I've heard that the outermost layer, the yeah, periosteum, the periosteum is, is, but like deeper. Yeah. It's deep into the bone so itself, much. it's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're not receiving a lot of signals from the brain telling them what to do. So they're very dependent on the local input that their bones are receiving. So when a bone asks, what is happening to me right now? The best possible answer always is something new. Nice. So conservatively, which is the only way you should talk about research, because none of us is a statistics expert, unless you are. No, I'm not. Not me. Uh, here's some takeaways. You want to tell us about some of the takeaways? Oh, sure. So takeaway number one, rest is important for bone building. Because if you just do steady state loading, your bone cells get bored. Rest can exist both in the immediate short term, like rest between reps or rest between instances of impact. Um, it can also happen in the middle term. So how much time between workouts in a week? And then it can also take place in the long term, the number of weeks to months on or off. And this relates to a topic we'll get into here pretty soon, which is periodization. So let's talk about this idea of rest in the long term, because Mm -hmm. I think so far we've actually talked quite a bit about rest between bouts of impact, rest between workouts, right? But now let's look at the study that looked at three different, we'll say periodized strategies, okay? Periodization really is just a way to organize your training over the course of weeks and months and sometimes years. So in the first example, they did five weeks on, 10 weeks off. That's one periodization strategy. In the second example, they did five weeks on, five weeks off, five weeks on. That's another periodization strategy. And the third was 15 weeks, no rest, no time off. Okay, so it it looked like the second strategy was the most successful. So what we might then try to sort of extrapolate and say is that, oh, okay, what this means is that when we're trying to keep our bones sensitized to a load, we should exercise them for five weeks, then take five weeks off and then exercise them for five weeks. Okay. Whether we're trying to keep them sensitized using impact training or strength training. And what I would suggest is the way that we're loading our bones with exercise is much more varied than the way that these rats bones were being loaded. These rats bones were being loaded in one way, using one type of machine, creating a bending force. And they were unconscious while it was happening. We as humans, we don't load our bones that way. (laughs) It makes me think of, sorry to break in, but it makes me think of those, um, it's basically just a fancy TENS unit where they like put it on your abs and you lie there and it makes your abs contract. That's kind of what OsteoStrong is claiming that it does. If you think about it. You sound like a rat. (laughs) (laughs) Um... What happens in the human world with bone loading is that we engage in hopefully some type of progressively overloaded program that's well-designed. And typically we will do what is called a training block. And training blocks can last anywhere from two to six weeks. On average, they're about four weeks in length. What a training block does is it basically takes a number of workouts, right? Workouts are comprised of exercises that you repeat week after week after week. Let's just say it's like workout A, workout B, workout C. For four weeks, every week you do workout A, workout B, workout C. And then after those four weeks are up, you change the workouts. So now workout A is a different set of exercises. Workout B is a different set of exercises. Workout C is a different set of exercises. And in so doing, you are probably 
changing a couple of things. You're changing the exercise, which means you're changing the direction that forces are being applied to your body. You're also potentially changing the load percentage, going maybe from lower to higher. And if you're, if you're steadily building from lower to higher over the course of an entire program, this is what's called linear periodization, but there's also something called undular, undulating periodization Ooh. and lots of different ways actually to change it up with regards to load percentage. And there might be other things that you're changing as well. Like say maybe in one block, you're working mostly on strength endurance, but on the second block, you're going to now shift more towards strength. And in the third block, you're now going to focus on power. Okay. And that's typically how athletic programs structure their um, off season, preseason and in season training to kind of accommodate for the competitive season or, or um, accommodate athletes needs for the competitive season. So in our bone density course, Lift for Longevity, we are applying a linear periodization model because we're starting people, presumably many, from scratch, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to actually start with really low load, high repetition, not really low load, but it's going to be lower, right, at its lowest. And you're going to be given workouts to do. Each workout will be different. And the reason for that, like you're going to do workout A and then workout B in a week, there'll be an option for a workout C as well, but all the exercises in both workouts are going to be different. So one of the reasons for that is because bones get bored, mm -hmm. right? So we're going to apply different directions of force. So you get more rest between bouts. And then after four weeks is up, we completely change out those workouts for new workouts, new exercises, and the load percentage might go up, right? So this is how we account for the needs of your bones, but it's also just really well-established way to program for strength as well, because it allows you to adapt to higher loads. It also allows for progressive overload to take place because we will be repeating the same exercises week after week after week, but then it also adds in this important element of variety, right? Variety and progressive overload um, go together like peanut butter and chocolate, because if we're only ever doing the same exercises over the course of months and months and months, muscles can sometimes be similar to bones and that muscles too can become desensitized and you can kind of plateau. But as soon as you change the exercise and maybe also the load percentage, you can start to st start to make changes again. I think bones get bored a lot more quickly. Bones get bored more quickly and it's harder to make changes to bones, mm -hmm. right? So we're actually employing every strategy that we can think of to make sure that this is really a bone friendly program first and foremost because the name of the course is bone density That's course right. <laughs> i mean there better be some bone business in there but there's going to be a lot of muscle building oh, business yeah. as well and there's yeah. going to be a lot of strength building business as well and by the end of the the program uh our participants are going to be lifting heavy which is super exciting very exciting it's very exciting so I just so sometimes when I just listen to Laurel talking, then I kind of go into a fugue state because I'm just listening to her and I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense. This is great. And then I'm like, oh, sh wait, now I have to actually say something now. That's where I am right now. So this this usage of periodization is basically, you know, what we've been talking about in the way we've been talking about these studies. And the bottom line is, you know, re some amount of rest is better than no rest at all. And rest can also mean changing the way you're doing the work, right? It can mean a change in the exercise, like Laurel was saying, so that the original, you know, pull on the muscle is getting a rest because now the muscle is getting pulled on in a, or in a different way by using a different load, a different strategy. Exactly. No, thank you for, for actually circling back on that, which is that I don't know if I made it super clear. Like we, we aren't going to take a four week break no. in the middle of this program. <laughs> We're not just going to stop Sorry, guys. strength training. Um, we are going to change up the exercises. And what that means is like, we're going to target the same muscle groups, but we're going to target them in a way where you're making a different shape and doing a different movement with your body, which means that you'll be targeting different muscle fiber directions. Some muscle groups will be targeted more than others. Um, it might be, for example, the difference between a bilateral squat and a lunge, right? Mm -hmm. Those are both excellent exercises to train the quads, 
but they're going to train the quads in a very different way. Therefore, the quadriceps are going to apply forces to your body in different ways as well. And that goes for all the major muscle groups that we're going to work in this program. Nice. Just to hammer it home one more time, this type of rest or periodization, the reason we care about it is because it's going to stop the bones from going into that cellular accommodation where they get bored and they no longer respond to the load that they're under. That's right. We're not going to let your bone cells or your brains get bored. Nobody's, nothing, not nothing on nobody's going to be bored. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And then if you ever do any research of your own, you find a way to get the phrase you're in trouble into the title. You can check out our show notes for links to references, and we'll have the links to all the studies that we mentioned, obviously, in this podcast. You can also visit the Movement Logic website and get on our mailing list. And this is a good opportunity for us to actually talk about our six-month progressive overload, strength training, weight lifting, bone density course. Don't you? Yeah, I do. So our bone density course is a six month course and it includes a six month program within it. It also includes bonus courses like strength training 101 and all about osteoporosis. But the bulk of the content is really the program and the program is six months because why Sarah? Because six months is in the research when you are able to start seeing changes to bone density. So if you are going to start doing this kind of progressive overload, no matter what weight you're starting from, you're not going to see any change in your bone density typically until you're past that six month mark. Right. And so we need at least that amount of time to make a change. It's properly programmed, which means that we start you where you are. So in the beginning, we're going to be focusing a ton on techniques. So you might be lifting what would be um, more moderate or even lightweight in the beginning for you so that you can really dial in the technique of, of working with a barbell. Now, it is a barbell-specific program, but that doesn't mean that you can't take a lot of the information we're sharing and apply it to using dumbbells and kettlebells. You certainly can. We just simply believe that a barbell is the best, most logical piece of equipment that you would want to become familiar with if you want to be able to progressively overload for life, yeah. right? And so this is the other thing too. This is a six-month program, but that's not to say that like you are going to ideally lift weights for six months and then stop. Like this is this is basically us helping you get started over a course of time where you will have ample time to learn how to use weights, learn how to strength train, learn how to progressively overload, learn how to progress toward lifting heavy weights. And barbells are the best way to be able to progress for life, but then we want you to keep going when this program ends and, and we'll give you ways of continuing to use our program to continue going, right? So it doesn't end at six months. It's it's something that we can continue to cycle back on and, and use. You it's, know what make, it reminds me of? Sorry to break yeah, in, but yeah. I was just thinking while you were talking about that, it reminds me of like, you know, when you see some a parent helping a child learn how to ride a bicycle with no training wheels. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember this, this is how I learned. My dad held onto the back of the bike and I started pedaling and he's running alongside me. And mm -hmm. at some point he lets go and I kept going. Right. right and it's exactly. that moment where like, you don't know as the person on like, when did that happen? Right. So in that, in that analogy, in that metaphor analogy story, Laurel and I are like your parent. We're going to hold on to you. <laughs> Is that weird? We're going to hold on to your bike, your metaphorical bike. And we are going to hold your hand the whole way through. And then the, our goal is to make ourselves no longer necessary so that you can then continue to work on your strength for the rest of your life. The course is called Lift for Longevity for a reason. Yeah. And, and two things that are really important. One, you, you own the course yes. when you buy it. So it's yours forever. You can always, it'll always live in your computer. And then number two is that this course is structured in a way that we have not encountered any other. First of all, there are no like six month programs that are guided with live option and recorded follow-along classes included with it. So a rude awakening for me when I was going from yoga into the strength training world and like I wanted to, to get stronger, it's like, oh, I need a program. Okay, I finally got that through my head. I can't, can't just be one-off classes all the time. So then I invested in a program and I got emailed a PDF. I was like, wait, where's the program? Where Where's the content? Wait, that was Where, literally all the you PDF. got? The PDF. So the PDF was linked to videos on Vimeo. So that, so yeah, so you, you're like, you're like, how do I do a bent over row? Oh, let me click over to this one minute demo video on Vimeo. And look, that's, that's a, that's a fine way 
to be given a program. The thing is, is that it's, it's actually very, very different though than how yoga practitioners and even Pilates, te Pilates teachers are used to being taught movement. We're used to going to a class where there's a group of people and being guided step-by-step step through what to do in the class. And so I think that it's more yoga slash Pilates teacher friendly to do the course the way we're doing it. We're offering one live class a week. You don't have to attend live. It's all going to be recorded. We're going to ask you to strength train more than one time a week, but we are not only going to provide you with a demo video of every single exercise that you're going to do in the program. We're also going to provide you with a full length class of every single workout in the program. So you will always have the option to just watch a quick demo and work out on your own, like the rest of the strength training world is doing, or you will always have the option to take the workouts as though it were kind of like a yoga class or a Pilates class for it to be a guided follow along experience. This, I cannot find anything like this, not to mention the fact that we have a physical therapist. <laughs> Who's that? And a strength coach. Who's that? Teaming up. Who to, are they? To provide you with this content, it's it's Sarah and I. You know, we we have a a breadth of knowledge and a breadth of expertise and a breadth of qualifications that it, you also don't always find, right? So, right. we have something for you that will give you a taste test Ooh. of what this program is going to be, which is a free webinar. And the webinar is just basically a workout. The way this workout will work is that you'll show up with whatever equipment you have. So if you have barbells, great. If you just have a broomstick, that's also good. And maybe if you have a couple dumbbells and kettlebells, we're going to take you through the experience of a workout. We're also going to do exactly what we're going to do in the course, which is leave time at the end of the workout for Q&A. We're also going to do exactly what we're going to do in the course, which is provide individuals with form check feedback and take questions. So it's going to be very interactive and basically a, an exact replica or slash. It's going to be an example of how this program will be for you to take in its longer form. This is a free webinar. You get a 30 day replay. It's happening on September 14th. If you want to attend live, if you can't attend live again, you will get emailed the replay. You'll be able to take the class a couple times, get a feel for what it's going to be like. And then knowing that's the bulk of the content, like you'd be able to make a better decision about whether or not this is course is something that you want to invest in. Absolutely. Um, so alternatives to this are obviously like to get one-on-one -on -one personal training sessions, mm -hmm. which I will never not recommend. It's a great idea. But in terms of cost, sometimes that can be a major valid objection. Like people just don't have a couple hundred dollars every month lying around to pay their personal trainer. And I think that, you know, that warrants longer discussion. If you don't have that type of money, the cost of this longer form course that, that we're presenting to you is a fraction of that cost with a lot of this. It's not the same thing as working with a personal trainer, but it has a lot of the same benefits yeah. because there's that live real time personal feedback component to it. So if that's interesting to you, make sure you go to our show notes where you can sign up to get the zoom link for our webinar that is taking place on September 14th. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. And, and the other thing is like, if you have been listening to this podcast, this is who Laurel and I are. There's nothing, this is not like, like these people are showing up in that class as well. So just get ready for it. <laughs> they'll be there. They'll be, these people will be there. By they, we mean we. We'll be there. And thank you so much for joining us on the Movement Logic Podcast. Finally, it helps us out tremendously. If you liked this episode, to subscribe and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>